Kare edani, karas no tomari geri, aki no kure. Hello friends and welcome to episode 13 of So Poetry. I do not have a guest today, it's just going to be me talking, uh, hopefully for not that long. I don't want to overload anybody with the amount of, I don't know, podca- <laughs> podcasting since the episode of the recording that I had with Steven last week ran fairly long. I decided for this one to try to keep it short, relatively short. I actually have somewhat of a time schedule uh, today. I'm going to try to knock this out in around 20 minutes, hopefully, because uh, my roommate and I are going to Home Depot for plants and to match some paint samples. So anyway, before I get into the the meat of the episode, I would like to mention or say a couple of things. One, the first one being thank you so much for everyone who has been listening has been listening from the podcast from the get-go and any new followers, the, the listeners, followers, whatever that I've picked up, I very much appreciate it and it is incredibly encouraging to know that people seem to care about the things that I say. Um, I don't know, it's, it's, I was, I was at a, a book fest, the, I was at City Lit Book Fest in Baltimore yesterday all day and was talking to one of my table mates just sort of about um, the the measure of success that I've I've decided to, to take with my press, and I see that I'm I think that I'm going to overlay that with the podcast. I mean, I'm not making any money with the podcast, but the the i the, the idea is that I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm creating my books, I'm creating this podcast in the hopes that it just reaches people that it needs to reach. I'm not going to begin to assume that I know who you are or what you need, but I hope that any of my episodes, if there's something that that you need to hear as an artist or as a thinker, as someone going through whatever, I I hope that it helps. And it's... I don't know, it's at least encouraging to know that there are people that seem to listen. Uh, I checked this morning for Steven's episode. There have been three downloads. There's up to 30 plays. Um, I would also like to say thank you to my international listeners. I know that I haven't done a whole lot of uh, episodes geared towards the international poetry community, but believe me, they're they're in the works. I'm, I'm... kind of burning through all of the the people that I know in Baltimore that that I want to talk to and I'm beginning slowly to reach out to other people which is uh it's easier for me from there when I can talk to people in physically near me because I can track them down and I see them more often as opposed to people that I would potentially have to Skype or Gchat with in order to to get an episode together but there are there are some people that I've I've had my eye on for a little bit that hopefully either towards the end of the season or the beginning of next season that I'll be able to talk to. But I, I just, I saw today when I was checking the stats that there was a, a 
somebody in Mexico listens, so thank you. Uh, I know that I mentioned some people, or the listeners from, uh, I think it was, I want to say Egypt, maybe? I, I think that that was one of the recent ones. There's definitely been some from South Korea, so again, just thank you. And it's that's also heartening to know that it's not just people that I know that are interested in this. Uh, the second thing that I would like to, to mention or to, to, to talk a little bit about is I definitely have noticed the amount of times that I say like and um in some of the recent episodes. I assume that I've been doing it throughout the entirety of the, my time recording. And I'm going to try to address that in so much as just not do it as often. I recognize that uh, um for me is definitely a placeholder word when I'm speaking relatively extemporaneously and I especially in my solo episodes where I don't entirely know where I'm going next with my thought or I get a chunk of it and then I I say that chunk and then I have to wait a little bit for the the next chunk to kind of catch up but I'm going to try to let that those those moments or those gaps just be kind of dead space and not so much me saying um because it gets old and it's definitely I've noticed it's definitely a little bit distracting or potentially a lot distracting and I also try to stop sucking my teeth like that and making that little click noise but anyway uh, I almost said um I am trying to make this a more I hope that the things that I do will, and stopping saying um will make it a, a smoother or better listening experience. No one has messaged me or said anything uh, on this topic. I'm just just I've noticed it and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to, to deal with it. But anyway, those two things out of the way. Today's episode uh, will be a very very brief history of haiku. I've been wanting to do a haiku-themed episode for a while, and this is not entirely the one that I've wanted to do, but I think it's a good place to start. There have been a couple of people recently that kind of randomly, in conversation with them, haiku has come up. Uh, there was one person on OkCupid that messaged me. I On OkCupid, I... I have a profile up just for, for friends, just because I'm always looking to meet and talk to interesting people. And towards the the bottom of my OkCupid, I have a, in all caps, you know, why won't anybody talk to me about Steven Universe or it's like Gravity Falls or some other uh, animated shows. And I also have some other point on there that I, I write, or poetry specifically haiku. So somebody messaged me and said that we should talk about Steven Universe in haiku, which was awesome. I, it was just cool that somebody would message me and have that be the message. So we sent a couple back and forth and one of the ones that I sent, the person responded that it didn't look like a haiku. So I, I kind of explained to her, at least as far as my understanding goes, what makes a haiku and a haiku and why I don't necessarily follow some of the the rules or the, the traditional quote-unquote traditional forms of it uh namely the 575 syllable count i don't do that i all that to say that that's some that's come up and then it's come up a couple other times um when i saw jane hirschfield read 
uh, back a couple of Mondays ago. She mentioned it. She read a couple before she read her own poems. So it's been on my mind. I'm definitely going to, to do probably more, actually do this more as a series and talk about kind of my understanding of haiku and where they are now and writing haiku in English and just kind of my experience with it. And I, there are a couple of haiku, specific haiku poets that I have met and that I know of that I would very much like to talk to. Uh, one, one of them is somebody that I'm hoping to get either towards the end of, like I, the people that I'd mentioned that I'd want to talk to. It's either hopefully she will be able to talk to me at the end of the season or the beginning of next season. So this is not a topic that's going to go away. If you've listened to this podcast at all, I'm sure that you've heard me mention it on numerous, numerous occasions. It is a primary form of writing for me. It is a kind of foundational, uh, I don't know, what like foundational form of poetry that even if, I, if I'm working with longer form stuff, it's still, I still try to kind of do what haiku, I still try to write those poems and, and do in those poems what I, what I do and write with haiku anyway. So all that being said, I would like to give a super, super brief history of it because I don't know if, if people really know where the, the, that particular, this particular form of poetry comes from. And if you, if there are some pauses, I apologize. I have some links and some stuff up and some books that I'm going to be referencing and I will put this stuff up in the description. But, uh, to start the, what we know of as, as haiku has a pretty long history. Although the term haiku, like what we've come to know it as a haiku is actually coined by, uh, Shiki. Uh, where is, what's his first name? Masoka. Masoka Shiki, around the turn of the 1900s. Um, before that, haiku as we know it wasn't really a thing. It was an aspect and part of a, of a longer uh, poetic history, which starts in the uh, Heian period of Japan, which I believe... Uh, was there kind of medieval period or maybe uh, no okay so formal poetry or um, I guess classical poetry started with the waka which is a and it's not syllables it's on for Japanese which is a different aspect which I will get to in other episodes but if you're curious that there it's uh, the 575 pattern is to, is comparable to, in Japanese, is comparable to iambic pentameter in English. It's just sort of a natural form or natural rhythm that Japanese has. So uh, the waka, which is a short poem, is arranged in a 57577 five, seven, seven, uh, on, or syllable, I don't like using that word, but anyway, that sort of rhythm, which if anyone's familiar with the uh, poems of Tanka, that's the form. And around, um, let's see. So the waka became kind of a principal uh, classical literature form beginning in the Heian period, which started in 794 and ran until like the mid 1100s. And then after that, 
in the, the sort of next period, it became a uh, linked form. Either, uh, what was it, Ringu, I believe, is the name. Let's see. Um, Ringa, sorry. So, Ringa is a, just a collaborative poem uh, that consists of two, usually consisting of two stanzas. Um, and the opening, the opening stanza of which is called the Hoku, which is sort of the like the foundation of what what haiku are based on. But I'll I'll get to that. So, um, Renga starts out as a form of sort of um, I don't know, like court poetry. Um, people would get together and have it's like it would be it would be the hallmark of you know your wit and your your lyricism. And it was comprised of two, like the two sections, a 575 section and then a 77 section. And then they would just, they would kind of keep going. Um, eventually, that turned into the Rinku, or the, uh, what is the actual word? The Haikai no Renga, which is, uh, translates roughly to comic linked verse. So, the Renga was this form of like very sort of high art poetry that was um, an aspect of the, the noble life and sophistication. And eventually it sort of bled out into the countryside and to the people who were, you know, kind of lay people. And it became uh, very comedic and kind of body. It, it uh, was the source of like kind of a parlor game. It was a, like a word game that, that people would get together and throw parties for and just kind of sit around and, you know, drinking or eating and just having fun coming up with, with, you know, hundreds of links in a long, long poem. Um, so that's, that's the Haikai no Renga. And that continues for a long, long time. Um, I don't know if, the, if I have a... So, up until the, like, the 16, 1600s, mid-1600s or so, because that's when Basho came along. There, was, there are a couple of other big names, um, like early big names. The, one of the other ones is Ueshima Onitsura. So he and Basho were, were kind of the, the top two, but Basho is usually... Um, looked at as the the sort of father. He he. I think he did more to kind of change what what haiku would become. He he influenced it a lot. Um, so anyway, so the haikai no ringa were was essentially party games, but they were uh, under the I guess the eye or the the rule of like a poetry master somebody who would show up who would be kind of in control of the game who would set the rules and set kind of the tone which is what the hoku was it was the the first stanza the opening stanza in the 575 pattern that set the stage for all of the rest of the the links to come and usually it was written for a very specific purpose and it usually included two specific elements, a kigo and, uh, what is it, the kareji, the cutting word, um, which I believe, yeah. So the kareji is, it separates the, the stanza into essentially two parts, and it's usually, like, much later in, high, in 
actual writing haiku, it's seen as the, the sort of, that's the thing that separates out into the the images that you have, and it's the, which give, what the kareji is a untranslatable Japanese word that creates a kind of internal space in the poem that separates it into two parts, into main, usually two images that are in some sort of relationship to each other. And there's also a kigo, um, which is a word or phrase that symbolizes, or I'm reading from Wikipedia, which is why the language sounds this way. It's a, a word or a phrase that symbolizes or implies the season of a poem, the season of the poem in, that it takes place in. And it is drawn from a uh, extensive but not prescriptive list of words. So essentially a glossary of words that you would use. So um, hototo gisu is uh, cuckoo, which is a summer word. Cherry blossoms are a particular air, like time of spring word. Plum blossoms are also a spring word. Um, like deep snow is like a late winter thing. The different kinds of moons. I think full, like the full moon had a, or like the color of the moon had a particular season. Um, but the Wikipedia article continues that uh, kigo are often in the forms of metonyms, and it can be difficult for those who are who like Japanese cultural refer references to spot, which is something that uh, Basho, Basho's haiku uh, by David Landis Barnhill in his introduction section talks a lot about, that the, the kigo aren't just necessarily nature words, but are sort of um, culturally understood things that have a lot of implication and imply a great deal, so that um, there's a lot kind of packed into that word that you you don't need to waste a lot of time setting the stage that if you if you use hototo gisu that conjures a very particular sound a very particular time of the year so that you can kind of get on with you know it's, it really is just essentially setting the stage since they show up in the hoko hoku it really is just setting the stage and kind of getting all of this stuff out of the way so that the rest of the poem can have time to expand and you know you can just kind of get on with the game um so, Basho, when he was writing, was writing hoku because he, as a as a kind of a wandering poet and a fairly at the time during his lifetime a fairly well renowned poet, he would often be tapped to be um, the like the game master, the poetry master. Uh, there is a particular word for that, but I don't remember what it is. Um, it is probably in one of these books, but. Whatever. So he, as he goes on these trips and as he's wandering around, he starts, you know, he's, he's writing out, like what he's writing, what we look at retroactively as haiku are actually hoku. So he's, he, what he's writing are these, like the opening lines that would become the first in a long, long chain of related sort of comic verse. As Basho gets older and matures in his writing, he starts... Um, he begins to to look at Hoku, and there's some other. I think there were some other poets around the time that were that were doing this. Um, again, I, I would like also like to say that I'm sorry if, if I'm super super rushing through this. Um, I'm like I said, I'm on kind of a schedule, uh, but it's like I, I'm. This is a brief brief history. Um, there's a lot. There, I could spend hours talking about this, but I'm just I'm just trying to get through it. So. 
Basho, as he matures, um, begins to to look at Hoku as things that are possible, like possibly could stand by themselves, or that they have their own their own sort of inherent merit. Um, so, in um, Mister Barnhill's uh, introduction, he writes. Um, one feature that distinguishes a hoku from the other stanzas in the um, the Haikai no Renga uh, is, uh, is it must contain a kigo which designates the, which season the poem is in. And um, hoku are by definition poems about a, the current season. So he, if he was writing, going somewhere in the summer, he would be writing a bunch of hoku about the summer. Um, and... Hoku also must be a complete statement, not dependent upon a succeeding stanza. So they have to be their own idea, their own unit. Um, and because of this, its importance to linked verse and its linked verses and its in and its completeness, Haikai poets began to write them as semi-independent verses, which could be used not only as the starting stanza for linked verse, but could also be appreciated by themselves. Uh, so the individual ho the individual poems that Basho created are properly speaking. Hoku. Um, and there was also uh, something that I read that um, he, so Basho was not only writing, you know, writing essentially semi-independent verses or semi-independent starting lines for much longer linked poems that follow a very specific pattern. Uh, he was also using them in haibun, which are a combination of um, prose and haiku and basho i don't know from from what i found i don't know if people were doing this before basho or if they were but basho was the one who coined the term haibun but if you've ever read any of his travel logs or his prose writings uh, he would usually you know like i think a narrow what long narrow journey to the deep interior oh crap i know that i'm i'm butchering that 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 uh, the title of that collection. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, yeah, now a road to the interior, uh, which is a travel journal. He he wrote some other ones too, but he would he would essentially give you kind of like a recap of what he experienced in a day or some some experience in long form in prose and then there would be a hoku at the end of it which would be sort of like a fulcrum or like a hinge point that um was related to but not exactly depicting of of what he wrote in prose um so again using kind of separating them out a little bit more from uh the dependence upon the rest of the linked verse. So after Basho, um, you get the other three of the sort of big four of poetry. So after after Basho, who died in 1694. So even even that, even Hoku, like what we're thinking of of that is, it's not a not an ancient style of poetry. This was being written around the time that. Um, you know, the colonies in the, the United States were kind of getting up and running. Um, so the next person to come along is uh, Yosa Busan, uh, who wrote, I mean, he lived from, he was born in 1716 and died in 1783. So, like, right as the American Revolution started. 
um, was a uh, a painter. So he mastered the form of haiga, which is sort of like haibun in that it is a hybrid form where you have uh, art, some some sort of calligraphic art. And that depicts what a haiku, like what the poem, or what a haiku poem is being written about. So you have these, you know, like huge, huge paintings of a scene of like cherry blossoms. And then in the corner or somewhere on the painting, there would be, for the, for the more elaborate ones, there'd be, you know, like a, a poem or a haiku, or I guess at the time, a hoku about um, whatever, you know, cherry blossoms or something like that. Um, and he, so Busan was a, was essentially a, like an idol and a, or not an idol of, he idolized Basho. So he, that was, I think the main kind of reason that he wrote, but, um, his haiku were much, um, much more painterly. They're much more imagistic. It's kind of like the, like landscapes as, as small, small poems, um, So, um, I can actually give you a sample of his. Oh, and the, um, the poem that started out the, the podcast is actually one of Basho's, and it is one of his, um, one of his more famous ones, um, and it goes, in English, it's, On a withered branch a crow has settled, autumn evening. And then one of Busan's is, In nooks and corners cold remains. Flowers of the Plum. And that was translated by R.H. Blythe, who was uh, instrumental in um, opening up haiku, or op bringing haiku to the West. But anyway, um, yeah, so, like, Busan was, he, he, I think that he was, he, his, his influence on haiku was that he turned them into more of like a painterly imagistic works. Um, I don't know if he participated in Haikai no Renga or not. Um, I probably should have done a little bit more research on that. But um, the next person who came very, very, very shortly after Busan was Kobayashi Isa. Um, so he, his main influence on, on haiku was, um, like a very humanistic and kind of funny approach. Um, there's one, one of his poems that I absolutely love is, um, don't worry spiders, I keep house casually. So Issa, Issa was more concerned about, um, like he he noticed the sort of small things. He has lots of poems written like directed to insects and birds and mice. Um, and there's a he was a um, he was a he was a lay Buddhist priest. So there's there's a great influence of the sort of kind of compassion that Buddhism has. Oh, before I go on with um, with Basho. Some of the the other influence that he had was the introduction of of the ideas of like wabi and sabi into um, into haiku and kind of in, into his life, um, which translate to like loneliness and a sort of austerity. 
So there's a, um, I don't know, there's a, like a sense or a, some sort of like pathos in haiku that, that like the good ones, or at least now what we know as haiku, um, the ones that, that really sort of like get you and hit you, or they, they, they hit somewhere. And that's like the combination of the wabi and the sabi that they, like there's a, there's a starkness to them, but also kind of a loneliness and a sadness, um, but towards the end of his life, he was um, championing championing the idea of uh, where is it? Um, Karumi, I believe, which is a um, yes, Karumi, which is uh, translated to something around lightness. Um, and back in the Barnhill book. Uh, this aesthetic, Grumi, reflected Basho's renewed sense of the significance of the mundane dimension of life in art. So, beginning to look at the sort of, um, the everyday and the simple, uh, to find the beauty that exists there, which Issa very much picked up on and continued. Um, Issa's poems, or his his hoku, are usually funny there's a, there's a, usually like a, a little bit of like a sly twist or like a smirk that i i you can kind of get um when he's writing although he had a he had a really ter like super super rough life um so i don't know if if the humor was sort of in spite of that or despite that um but yeah so that brings us up to uh, the sort of mid 1800s or so. So, like I said, this is, we're getting much, much closer to sort of like contemporary. Um, and then the the last major figure uh, that kind of revolutionized everything was Musoka Shiki, who uh, had a very brief life. He was chronically ill. He died very young. Um, he was born in 1867 and died in 1902. Um, so, like, American Civil War era to the turn of the century. Um, and Shiki is actually responsible for what we know now, like, what we know today as haiku. Um, so he, at, you know, haiku or hoku, the traditions that were kind of set in place by Basho and then continued by Busan and Isa, um, you know, everyone was sort of writing these things, but for Shiki, they, um, they became, like, he saw them as, like, hackneyed or trite, that they, they that writers, like, contemporary writers of his, that he knew weren't really sinking to the heart of like, what this form could be. So, um, I'm reading from the, from the, the haiku Wikipedia page. Um, Shiki disliked this, the quote-unquote stereotypical haikai writers in the 19th century who were known by the depreci uh, depreciatory term, uh, of Japanese term that means monthly, after the monthly or twice-monthly haikai gatherings at the end of the 18th century. Um, so in regard to this period of haikai, it became, like, the term became to be known as trite or hackneyed. Um, Shiki also criticized Basho, um, although it says there's a citation needed. Uh, there's another book that I have that I don't have downstairs with me 
that I will put up as a is an awesome awesome reference that gets you uh, kind of around. It's I think it's Modern Haiku by edited by uh, Ueda I think. But he he in the, in his introduction he gives you um, sort of most of, like most of the major figures around the the turn of the century, and uh, kind of where their allegiances lied and how they viewed haiku. Shiki primary among them, whose view ended up kind of winning out. Um, so he uh, reading again from. Um, from the article, uh, Shiki favored the painterly style of Busan and particularly particularly the European concept of plain air painting, where you know you go out somewhere and you paint what you see, um, which he adapted to create a style of haiku that is a kind of nature sketch in words, um, and the approach called uh, chassei, which translates to sketching from life. So he. Uh, Shiki championed the idea of um, everyday, like writing from your everyday life. That you, if you see a truck, so he, one of his one of his big gripes was the idea of like kigo. That you had these these sort of cultural and foundational, um, you know, familiar words that nobody was experiencing anymore because a lot of the, the writers were living in cities, but they were still writing very, you know quote-unquote nature-based poems so for Shiki he um, he tried or he, he wanted to open up the, the realm of, of that style of poetry to deal with the, the things that he was he saw in modern-day life so like cars I, well maybe not cars but like trains and the city life and you know like things that were that were um, they were pertinent to people at the time because one of there was another I don't remember his name but there was another haiku um, I don't know scholar around the time that Cheeky was writing that or maybe a little bit before that um, popularized sort of romantic haiku very much drawn upon Wordsworth and Coldridge and that sort of you know spontaneous outpouring of emotion um, that again was very um, very nature oriented that for Cheeky felt. Uh, disingenuous that you know if you if you wrote about a, trying to live or if you wrote about a romantic life there was no real connection and there's no heart of that in that poem because nobody really lived that sort of life it was a, a much more sort of abstract intellectual idea so for him he was like you know i want these poems should be drawn from the the concreteness and the solidity of like everyday life so that's what uh chasse is um and he put like he wrote essays and columns um, in newspapers, so he was you know all over the place. Um, again, from the the Wikipedia article, the hoku up to the time of Shiki, even when appearing independently, were written in the context of renku, so in the context of linked verse that you you would see you would recognize those things as the the beginning stanza of a much longer form, uh, but. Shiki formally separated the new style of verse from the context of the collabor of collaborative poetry. And, apparently being agnostic, he also separated it from the influence of Buddhism. Um, and further, he discarded, and this is something that I didn't know until this morning when I was reading this, that he discarded the term hoku and proposed the term haiku, which is an abbreviation of the phrase haikai no ku, meaning a verse of haikai. Um, 
although the, the term predates shiki by uh, some two centuries um, when it was used to mean any verse of a haikai. So, like that term, the haikai no ku, has, was around a little much longer than shiki, but shiki was the one to specify that, um, like a separated hoku, or these these poems that they were now being written outside of the context of linked verse, should be called uh, haiku. Um, so, since then, haiku, quote-unquote, has been the term usually applied both in Japanese and English to all independent haiku. Irrespective of their date of composition, uh, irrespective of their date of composition. So that's why when people talk about Basho as being a haiku poet, that's Shiki's influence. That I mean, Shiki and kind of after's influence. That um, after after he made the formal change, everything that was being written in that form before was sort of retroactively seen or like essentially like retconned into haiku. Um, also, um, Shiki's revision is revision of the term and the idea of haiku dealt a severe blow to Rinku in the surviving haikai schools at his time. Um, so now the term hoku is used chiefly in, in the original sense of the opening verse of a Rinku and is rarely used and is used rarely to distinguish haiku um, written before Shiki's time. So, like I said, that's why we know Basho as a haiku poet instead of a hoku poet. Um, but that's that's kind of it. I mean, after Shiki did what he did, um, that's kind of how we got haiku now. Um, let me see if the article on um, Shiki gives a little bit more of a... Yeah, so essentially, Shiki at the time that he was writing was very uh, disheartened by what he saw as as the sort of like writing state of haiku, or the writing state in that particular um, that particular form, and uh, decided that you know there needed to be a change and that there needed to be uh, a distinction between what he saw as the sort of trite stuff versus like the like the 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 art um but yeah so on the Masoka, Masoka Shiki Wikipedia article um it says that uh Shiki may be credited with salvaging traditional short form poetry and carving out a niche for it in the modern Meiji Meiji period uh, while he advocated reform of haiku, this reform was based on the idea that haiku was a legitimate literary genre. genre. So the, the, the short form poems in and of themselves that followed the 575 pattern were in themselves a legitimate form of, of writing and not just an, an outcropping of some other form. Um, he argued that haiku should be judged by the same yardstick that is used when measuring the value of other forms of literature, um, something that is contrary to the views held by prior poets. Um, and so he also, like some of the modern haiku, deviate from the traditional 575 sound pattern in dispensing with the kigo. kigo. Um, although Shiki's... Uh, Haiku reform didn't advocate either of those. Um, 
although his particular style rejected quote puns the puns or fantasies often relied on by the old school in favor of the realistic observation of nature um so instead of instead of sort of uh relying super super heavily on the the poetic tradition that came before you and you know using essentially like metonym words or phrases to to mean sort of a much larger reference um he wanted people to deal with or he, what he saw as haiku was a like a very honest realistic sketch of something that's happening in nature in your life at the time um he was also a huge fan of baseball which is interesting um and i, I think that there's a collection of his out there that is um specifically baseball haiku which is pretty cool um yeah, so what started out as a super, super like highfalutin form of poetry that turned into kind of like a, you know, kind of ribaldrous, uh, like pub game, essentially, uh, then transformed very, very slowly into a world-renowned form of like short imagistic nature-based poems um so and with um with the the i guess export slash import of haiku into other cultures and other languages there have been some other sort of some other changes that have happened um most people still there are a lot of people that still write um, especially in English, in the like the five seven five pattern, um, which my issues with that will be uh, set aside for another another podcast episode. Um, but kigo, as as they're used in Japanese, are often sort of kind of let go in favor of at least in English, more just sort of nature nature based uh, images, um, because. Part of the argument that I read is that the United States does not have a relative, does not have a homogeneous uh, experience of cultures because the country's so big and because the, you know, there's just tons of different weather that you know, snow for winter in Maine is not going to be the same sort of winter image that you have in South Florida or South Texas. Um, so. I think that in, in lieu of that, some sort of maybe cultural metonyms are being used. So like Christmas kind of comes, brings with it a, a, an idea or a sense or, you know, Thanksgiving or Halloween, like major holidays or, um, you know, I don't know, like things that more, that is more shared by people in the culture. But yeah, so that was, that was sort of a um, super super crash course um at least of, with japanese haiku um i could continue talking about rh blythe or um ezra pound or gary snyder um or even um kerouac who like the beats loved haiku and they wrote you know they they put their own kind of mark on it um but yeah, so I'm, I talked for a good bit more than I intended to. Um, I hope that that wasn't too confusing for everybody. 
if I might go back and listen to this before I post it and see if there's any any place that I could maybe tighten up or, or potentially just re-record it with some more time. But that's that's a very rushed, very brief history of haiku. If anybody has any questions or comments, or if I, you know, if I miss uh, misrepresented or misinformed any any particular thing, please let me know. I am not above making corrections. Um, I'm also, you know, I've made many addendums, but yeah. So thank you for listening. I hope I hope that you found it interesting. I I hope that haiku is not something that you will get tired of listening to me talk about because it's I I'm passionate about it and I'm interested in it and I'm uh, there's a level of I don't know I think general misinformation or at the very least maybe misunderstanding that people have uh, in regarding that particular form and I would like to do what I can to kind of clear up any misconceptions or any fill in the gaps for any lack of information that people may or may not have Uh, but like I said I'm not above being corrected so please if I if I said something wrong let me know Uh, but aside from that um Go find a collect. Go read some Basho or Shiki. Well, maybe Isa. Isa is probably a pretty good place to start because he he has sort of the like the I think the widest range of of uh, as a writer. Um, and there, because so many of them are, are funny, it's a little bit easier to kind of get into him and see what he's doing. But yeah, go read some haiku. If not, I don't know. Go read some form of poem poetry that is foundational to your understanding of the art and art in general and i will talk to you all next time